One of the the major themes that we've seen in Acts week by week by week as we've worked our way through is that the gospel is spreading out to the world. This is not just a a Jewish outcrop, a sect of Israel with some funny ideas about God's promised king having actually come. This is big news. And we, we knew that from eight verses in at the very start of Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, because we were told there that the risen Jesus explained to his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea or Samaria, but to the ends of the earth, the book that was going to show God's fulfilment to Abraham, his promise to Abraham. From his family, one would come and all the earth would be blessed through them. And so we had these ripples spreading outward like a rock going to the middle of the river. You see the ripples going further and further and further outwards. In chapter 8, do you remember we reached Samaria? Samaria was kind of sort of Israel. The northern tribes, they were historically Israelites. They had intermarried with the surrounding nations. So they were kind of long-lost cousins who were frowned upon. Not particularly popular. Second class. Sort of, still part of the family. Still had the same heritage if you went back further, far enough, but not particularly liked. And so Samaria was the first hurdle. Just have a flick back to chapter 8 with me. Um, See if you remember what was going on there. Saul is there overseeing the persecution. The church scatters, disappears, they get out of there. But what did they take with them as they were scattering? They took the message of life. So wherever they went, they opened their mouths to the gospel, the gospel, and God opened people's hearts to the gospel. Lives were transformed. It looked like the plan had all gone wrong. But in reality, it had gone right. And there in chapter 8, to authenticate real believers, they receive the Holy Spirit, these Samaritans. So look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John there. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, some Christians would disagree with me, but I think this is a unique point in salvation history. This is special. This is to convince people this is legit. There's this two-stage process whereby they they seem to believe in Christ and be baptised, and then the apostles come later on and the Spirit comes, authenticating this is real, this is right, this is true. And they receive the Holy Spirit, chapter 8. That's what happens when the Gospel reaches Samaria. The ripple's going out. But here in 11, something similar happens again. It's another leap into the unknown. The gospel ripples, they've gone through Samaria and here they are in enemy territory, Gentile territory. And again, the questions are raised. What on earth is going on? How can these Gentiles believe? How do we know this is true? How can we tell? And so what I think Luke, what Peter does in these verses, as Peter explains his actions, is seek to persuade us this is true. This is legitimate. This is a real work of God, genuine. How does he do that? He initially repeats it, because basically it's the same message that we heard last week with Pete. So if you were here last week, 
um, you might find that resonates with you. Uh, But then he sets up five brief reasons, I think, why we should be convinced this is legitimate, this is genuine. So, firstly, we see the problem, verse 1 to 3. Here's Ofsted. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter goes up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticise him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. News has spread. That was not surprising. We might expect that. This is no small thing. The, the guys at the top seem to have heard and normal believers seem to have heard as well. The apostles and the believers. And no doubt some receive with joy, but others feel threatened. They don't understand. They, they could just about perhaps cope with the, the Samaritans believing that they were sort of from our bloodline if you stretch back far enough, but complete unbelievers. Pete was telling us that a tanner, someone who touched leather and animals, who would have been unclean, entering his house, enjoying his hospitality, that's a step too far. Peter has crossed the line. And so that's the problem in 1 to 3. How are we going to persuade if this is legitimate? If we are the apostles, if we are the circumcised believers in Jerusalem, how are we going to understand and believe this is right? Well, five little things. First one. Verse 4 to 10, God's prophetic dream explains... So Peter's given this dream in those verses there, 4 to 10. He explains the dream that the Lord gives him. It's a white sheet being lowered and it's got all kinds of unclean animals on it. Verse 6, there are four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds. Sounds a little bit like a kind of live picnic, doesn't it? I'm not sure that's quite the imagery God's going for, but a, a sheet comes down with things to eat on it. It's a slightly unusual picture. The message is clear, though, in 7. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter, of course, with his Jewish background, is reluctant. He has grown up not eating these kinds of food. His mindset is wanting to be clean and pure and set apart and different, not breaking the law of God. And so he replies, verse 8, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The message comes to him in verse 10. You see, it comes three times. God has made all foods clean. That's the basic premise. Which, of course, means that Christians can enjoy food that were not clean in the Old Testament. There might be social reasons or cultural reasons or, or mythological reasons where we won't eat particular foods. But that is not a sin now. We can eat bacon and pork and shellfish or rock badger, whatever we want to. It's not a sin. All food is clean. Strikes me this is an area people still get in a muddle, though. Um, I saw a video very recently. Have you heard of a guy called Joel Osteen? Kind of general nod. There we go. He is the pastor of a church in America with 48,000 people in it. It's about a third of Oxford. And the sermon he was preaching to them from a few years ago said they should not eat shellfish 
and they should not eat pork or bacon. Why? Because the Bible says those foods are unclean. This is a pastor with a church the size of a third of Oxford. But what does God say in verse 9? Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Joel Osteen is wrong. He's wrong because he doesn't understand how the Bible works. I would say he's wrong in part because he doesn't quite get how the cross works. He doesn't understand that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. Christians, it seems, people who would call themselves Christians, can still live under the law because they haven't grasped what Jesus did as he died in their place. And so this vision says, because of the cross, food boundaries have been removed. All food is pure, is clean, and therefore people boundaries have been removed. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. Imagine that you wake up the next morning and you're Peter. And you think, what was that? Did I have something a bit dicky before bed? Was that legitimate? Was that real? And so second point then, verse 11 to 14, God's providential encounter applies. Verse 11, right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. So his dream isn't just kind of interesting theology for Peter. It isn't just some sort of sleeping Bible study. Straight away it's applied. Straight away he has to do something about it. It makes a difference. God is backing up the message. It's like it's a large jigsaw. The Lord is at work and he's putting pieces together. He gives Peter this dream with a message. And then he has the chance to apply it. He is providentially and sovereignly ordering the parts, overseeing it. So he stretched Peter's understanding in the dream and then he stretches his life as this guy turns up. Because the angel has been to this other guy, Simon, telling him to send for Peter in Joppa because Peter's going to have a message for him. But after the dream, he's willing to come. Verse 14, he will bring you a message through which you and your whole household will be saved. It's interesting, isn't it? Just one person telling another the good news of Jesus. And that's how the gospel goes out. It's as simple as that. The message of the gospel spreading. We've been reading a great book um, as a family in the mornings. Uh, with my kids, so I've got uh, Ellie, 11, Barney, 8, Josh, 4, Abby, 2. Um, it's a book called With Two Hands. It's um, a book about the gospel spreading through Africa, particularly Kenya, in the 60s. Um, Matt and Rachel Round recommended it. Uh, I would recommend it to you. In one sense, it's quite ordinary. It's one person telling another about Jesus. It's the gospel spreading through new territory. It's, it's the ripples going out to the ends of the earth. Quite ordinary, everyday stuff. But in other words, it is absolutely extraordinary the way that the God works in, in new areas. Dreams that people have had saying, wait, wait here and you will find the words of eternal life. And so people waiting and people turning up with the Bible and explaining to them the message of Christ. 
one we just read today over dinner. Um, a, a lovely story of somebody who had, who had given a prophecy to this tribe saying there will be um, a person with light skin coming up out of the water who will have gold leaves and a message of life. And the story we read comes to this guy who, who's fallen in the water, this missionary. He's got a bag full of Bibles and stuff, but it's kept dry. He's got lighter skin than the rest of the African tribe. Comes up and the gold leaves is his Bible with the gold on the edge. And churches are formed. It's, a, it's astonishing stuff. With two hands, read it, be encouraged, pass it on. Those things surprise us and excite us because they don't happen very often in, in our kind of situation and context. They seem, it seems to me, to cluster where the gospel is spreading into new territory, to new areas, and so to back up the message of Jesus. The Lord does amazing things, these miraculous things. I'd say it made me wonder, if I had a dream like Peter, three times, would I obey it? Someone turns up at your front door the next morning... Would you be up for sort of taking that slight risk, looking a bit silly? Peter's given this vision, this dream, which stretches his understanding. But he obeys. Off he goes. God's providential encounter applies. And notice too, it's not just him. Verse 12 to 14, God's people together verify. So, just a short point in passing, but... He seems to be making it clear that he's, he's not a lone ranger in doing this. So verse 12, these six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. You can imagine people saying, well, did anybody confirm this? Can you prove it? Is this just you doing your thing, Peter? Or were others there at the same time? It seems we can easily adopt a sort of Christianised version of, well, I'm just being true to myself. And I've done this because I feel this is what I should do. I feel God has called me to do this and I'm going, rather than being in discussion with others, rather than discussing with your church leaders or listening to others. We can abuse the language of calling as an individual, which means that we can't then question folk and push back at them. I've got a friend who's very good on this sort of stuff. He's, he's a church leader. And he's seen... Um, Young person after young person who's come through this church and say, I feel called to world mission. I, 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 want to, I want you to support me and to send me out to the ends of the earth. And they sort of pr- press back and say, OK, let's talk about this, let's pray about this, let's talk about your evangelism, let's talk about your lifestyle, your character, your gifting. Uh, and they're not willing to accept the kind of pushing back because they feel called to it, so they say. They may well be called to it. There's a sense in which we need the verification of others to back up the things that we think God is calling us to. Doing things in isolation can be very dangerous. Striking that God, that Peter, makes sure, it seems to me, others are in on these decisions. This isn't Lone Ranger Peter doing what he wants to do. He's making sure others are there to verify, to back it up. You've got these six guys going with him. Fourth one. Verse 15 to 16. God's plan of salvation is remembered. He says, do you know what, we shouldn't be surprised that this happened. This was always the plan. 
we had just slightly missed it. 15 to 16, as I began to speak to them, the Holy Spirit came on them as they had come on them at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Gentile believers are baptised by the Holy Spirit. They receive God's Spirit. We'll look at that in a bit. But to try and explain what happens, Peter goes back to Jesus. He says, remember, Jesus said he will pour out his spirits. That will be a mark of the new covenant. That will be a mark of his kingdom. That will mean we know who authentic believers are. It is an interesting way round. You can grab me afterwards over this, but I've wrestled a bit this week. Normally we think it's the other way. We think scripture, we think truth, doctrine, helps us to understand our experiences. But here it's back to front, isn't it? This experience happens, this thing happens, and so they go back into scripture, they go back to the words of Jesus at this point in salvation history, and they realise perhaps they didn't have full understanding It kind of feels back to front. It feels a bit topsy-turvy. I think the application for us, in one sense, although I think it's a unique point, it's a reminder of what the reformers said. We should always be reforming. That's semper referanda, I think. Always reassessing truth in light of what we now know, in light of who we are. A willingness to be challenged and changed, to be stretched, a softness of heart. A desire to be thinking and rethinking. To reapproach Scripture in light of us now, what we know now, in light of Scripture, in light of who we are, in light of what's happening. To be careful with that, Scripture must be foundational. But I think it is striking here that because of what happens, they go back seeking to understand it. So, four things so far. We have this problem. The gospel's gone to the Gentiles. Four things to make us think it's legitimate. There's a prophetic dream, there's a providential encounter, there's other people to verify it, there's a salvation plan that they remember. And fifthly and finally, and I wonder most importantly, God pours his spirit out, which convinces them. Verse 17, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Because they receive the Spirit, they know they're Christians. Emmanuel, God comes to dwell within his people, among his people. And if God accepts them and gives them life, then how can we not accept them? How can we not bring them into the community? I think it's, hopefully it's an obvious one, but it means if you're a Christian, you, you have God's Holy Spirit living in you. Very commonly... People can talk about kind of two tiers within the Christian faith. They can even look at places like Acts 8 and say, well, that these people were Christians but they didn't receive the spirits. And I think what's clear here is that if we are believers, 
we have his spirit living in us. Does God sometimes pour out his spirit in exceptional ways? Sure. Is it right for us to pray and to long to be increasingly filled, increasingly led by his spirit? Sure. But that is God blessing us and equipping us and enabling us perhaps for particular things. It's, it's, it's not us not having had the spirit before. As his people, we have his Holy Spirit. seems to me that that's a, that's a bit of a difference between the Old Covenant and the New. It's dangerous when we begin to look at Old Covenant texts without quite understanding what's going on. So do you remember in Psalm 51, David, he's praying to God, he's, he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he prays, Lord, do not take your spirit from me. And we get a bit twitchy and thought, can you do that to me? Is that possible, if I'm a believer? But I take it his spirit there was given to anoint and equip David for his position as king, for his task. To remove his Holy Spirit would in a sense mean that he's either doing the job on his own or he's removed from the position, his status is gone. For us, this side of the cross, this side of his spirit being poured out, we, we have his spirit. He gives it freely. Emmanuel, God is with us. This is a key, key passage in Acts. Peter is wanting the gospel to to go out. He wants us to see it's legitimate that the Gentiles, I guess people like us, are now included in God's family, in his kingdom. On your seats, I've put postcards. I've done that just to draw your attention to one thing in particular, but to say this is not new for Maldon Road in, in one sense, it's just showing visually the kind of church we, we've always wanted to be. Um, a church that at the heart of who we are loves the Lord, which then equips and enables us to, to reach out to the peoples of East Oxford, Oxford and the world, to build up people, to care and disciple them in Christ-like relationships. And to send people out for Christ-honouring service. But notice that reach bit there. (coughs) We want to reach out to all the peoples of East Oxford, Oxford and the world, with the glorious gospel of Christ. We we recognise we are in Gentile territory. We are amidst all kinds of people. We would love to be a church that reaches those sorts of people. Because I wonder, in our minds, whether, if we're honest, we can still think of some people as unclean. The Gospel's kind of not quite for them. They're a bit too far gone. They're a bit too different from us. Yet it seems to me that Acts, more broadly, perhaps Acts 11 specifically, Push us out. Push us out to reach people with this glorious gospel of Christ. Perhaps people who are challenging to us. People who we might think are unclean and too far gone. Verse 9. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. 